0: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Good evening, good evening, everyone. It's a beautiful night here in downtown Toronto, Ontario.
2: Live from the intersection of Richmond and Spadina. this is the fourth annual Ishtagi Awards. Well, well, not, not live exactly. Like this year's Canadian Screen Awards, we are coming at you fully pre-taped. But it is nighttime. It's the most exciting night in Ontario politics. Well, aside from that night in June when the PCs won re-election. Uh, except actually that, that wasn't that exciting.
1: But the voters had their voices heard loud and clear. And on June 2nd, they elected four more years of the Duggies.
2: Sparing us from an award show called the Del Dukies or perhaps the Horfies.
1: Last year, we handed out $240 checks to all of our Dougie Award winners in honour of Doug Ford's license plate sticker rebate checks. Turns out, however, that issuing
2: monetary awards to politicians so close to an election campaign, even if they're fake monetary awards, runs afoul of Ontario's only developers are allowed to do this act. But lucky for us, we got to the integrity commissioner before the media broke the story. And he issued an opinion that, based on on what we told him, Wag the Dug not only did nothing wrong but was, in fact, ten thousand and one percent innocent.
1: Nobody can influence Wag the Dug. The Wag the Doug family has been in politics for 30 years, and we know thousands of Dougie Award winners. We have an open-door policy at the Dougies, and never in all my years of Canadian podcasting have I heard reporters ask questions about award show in this manner.
2: Except perhaps for that one time Jesse Brown watched the Canadian Screen Awards, although I am just kidding. Neither he nor anyone else to my knowledge has ever actually watched the Canadian Screen Awards. Tonight is a chance to change the channel on this unfortunate controversy and remind Ontarians what unites us. So we will be handing out save the dates for Ford's next daughter's wedding. That is the nuptials of Kier... Kuala Qualiford. Let's start
1: the show. Yeah. I'm Alison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park today. And I said it's a beautiful evening, but it's actually March, so that was totally not true.
2: And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candlant, and I just remembered that it's now been nine years since Doug Ford went down to LA for Oscar weekend. And this
1: is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. Right now is the time. The first category of the night is Most Surreal Moment.
2: My nominee for Most Surreal Moment is the speech that Michael Ford gave earlier this year in India. Now, everything about Michael Ford is a little bit surreal. The premier's 28-year-old nephew, who serves as his minister of citizenship and multiculturalism, he he would arguably not appear too out of place in one of Robert Zemeckis' motion capture animated films. But the greenness of Michael Ford's Uncanny Valley was never really more evident than when he traveled to India earlier this year to take part in the centenary celebration for Pramukh Swami Maharaj in Gujarat. It was kind of remarkable to see Ontario's favorite Nepo Baby deliver remarks on behalf of the government to an audience of Thousands, I probably thousands. I didn't really see any good, get any good crowd shots or reverse shots, but pro- probably thousands of people. And here's a deeply unfair supercut of the highlights. And on behalf of Premier Ford and the government of Ontario, we would cordially co- invite um, um, His Holiness, if, if able, to uh, come up to Toronto. I am proud that Ontario is home to over 900 people from India. As the Minister of Citizenship and oh sorry. They, they have – and with um, over 900,000 people from, from India, they help enrich our cultural and contribute to our province's economic growth and pros- – he also went out of his way to care for the spiritual and physical needs of all who seeked it. And, and that he stumbled a few times was kind of one or whatever. Uh, what's surreal is that he's now the same age that I was when, when I first met him. Time, man.
1: I nominate the speech Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowd as well delivered to the legislature right before Christmas, where she, without directly saying so, warned that Doug Ford's government is undermining democracy. For context, this was just a few weeks after the Ford government used the Notwithstanding Clause to legislate low-paid QP education workers back on the job. And not long after the province also made it law that Toronto City Council could pass rules with just one-third support rather than a majority. So instead of her usual upbeat holiday greeting, Dowdiswell said this. Every time I get invited into this chamber, I walk in with a sense of awe, but I also, and maybe it's particularly this year, feel a heavy weight, the weight of obligation, the weight of opportunity to protect and nurture something that we all hold so precious, and that's our democracy. We see a fragility in democracies around the world, and Canada is no different. As you head home to the embrace and warmth of your family and friends, particularly this time of year, I hope that you'll be able to spare some moments of reflection about the privilege that each one of us has to protect the democracy that we hold dear. I hope you come back with a renewed energy to do that. So Mm. that's what she told the chamber of MPPs at Queen's Park. Um, And that counts as
2: passive-aggressive from left-hand governor.
1: Definitely. I definitely does. And the opposition, you know, really called this out at the time and the in the media too, say, okay, characterizing this as as doubt as well scolding Doug Ford's government and the lieutenant governor's office did not try to correct that interpretation, hmm. which I think if that wasn't what she meant, they would have. So yeah, I'm just calling it out as pretty surreal to have the king's representative in Canada publicly chastising— I think You could have ended the sentence there.
2: It's pretty sure you'll have a king's representative in Canada. Sure, at all. yeah. Oh, sorry, but, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but also the one that's here is uh, publicly chastising the Doug Ford government for heading down an undemocratic road.
2: Wow! Yeah, the Queen dies and look what happens. And the winner is Lieutenant
1: Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell. Congratulations! Your save the date is in the mail. And the next category is Doug's best battle.
2: Uh, And my nominee for Doug's best battle is the people of Ottawa. It's not so much a battle as... A siege. (laughs) Yes, a siege. Doug Ford's deep reluctance to get involved with or have anything to do with the convoy occupation of the capital last year was concerning enough at the time. Curious, weird, odd, not too surprising, but thanks to this lovely public order emergency commission that took place last fall we have some more answers i mean ford and his ministers refused to participate or give anything at all toward this but from the side of the federal government we got some we did get some insight into where the provincial government was at with this And so we know that the municipal government and the various people of Ottawa and the various officials in Ottawa were basically repeatedly begging Doug Ford for help, their letters are all online. You can read them on the uh, commission website. Uh, But we also have this, as we previously alluded to, a transcript of a phone call between him and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in which they sort of started to get on the same page about what was happening. And what Doug Ford said and what he basically admitted was, yeah, Ottawa, you know, didn't handle it well, but that's whatever. The bigger thing for him, the bigger one for us and the bigger one for the country is the Ambassador Bridge. And from what we've seen through this process and what this uncovered is basically that Doug Ford really didn't seem to care much about what happened in Ottawa. But as soon as things started to muck up, as soon as he started getting calls from business leaders uh, in, the auto, in the auto industry... From people, from people in the States, from various officials in Michigan, that's when he took action. One of those clearest distillations we've seen of him ignoring letters from people, ignoring entreaties from average people, and instead just basically jumping at the word of business. It took businesses calling him, and it took American officials calling him for him to start to take it seriously, and he kind of almost said as much. And that's really remarkable. It also sort of goes to you know, what I've said many times, where like as soon as someone talks to him on the phone, like, you know, Ottawa, they were sending him like letters that he you know maybe wasn't reading or weren't making their way to him. But When people called him, when he was getting phone calls from people that, you know, he respected or people in business, he jumped. And so... I don't know if Doug Ford was fighting the people of Ottawa directly so much as basically stepping aside as they were fighting amongst themselves when he really should have intervened as they were requesting him to do.
1: I'm picturing like an old-fashioned, like, legal scale. And on one, it says, for the people. And on the other side, it says, open for business. And they're teetering up and down, up and down, and then open for business, just outweighs oh, yeah. the other, ultimately.
2: So another person from the federal government summarized a call that Ford had had with uh, Minister Dominic LeBlanc uh, where he summarized as, the premier is very concerned about the impacts on the business climate and that this is negatively impacting how Ontario and Canada looks in the United States and in the world. He's hearing from many companies raising serious questions about how this can happen in Canada and they're questioning future investments. I mean, if you want to get Doug Ford to do or not do anything... I don't know. See if you have a friend in the United States who has a business to his name. <laughs> give him a call on his personal cell phone. Chances are you'll you'll have some policy affected. Yeah, is it a battle? I don't know, but it's uh, certainly it's certainly a fight.
1: My nominee for best battle is a battle that hasn't quite started yet, but is currently fomenting in uh, back rooms and shadowy hallways. And it's, as John already mentioned, the, the battle for the next mayor of Toronto. Mm-hmm. So Doug Ford has said he's on official capacity, not going to engage in this battle, and he won't endorse anyone. But from remarks he made a few weeks ago, he kind of already has. Uh, he declared that if a lefty mayor gets in here, we're toast. It'll be a disaster. Uh, <laughs> Toronto's tickety-boo. So that battle won't officially begin until April. But what I think is interesting that many, many PC-linked political strategists and Mm -hmm. fundraisers have already declared their allegiances to various candidates in the center, right of center and former police chief categories of mayoral candidates, potential mayoral candidates which signals to me this is a the turf that the campaign's going to be fought on it's going to be all about tough on crime clean up the streets like just wait for it that's what we're going to be hearing and that the stakes are very high in this battle like Toronto loves an incumbent so whoever gets elected mayor in this by election will likely stay mayor for a long time Plus, there's the strong mayor powers that we already talked about, um, and, like, the potential Ford intervenes or revokes them or who knows what. Yeah, like, Ontario already has so much power over the city, and it's letting it wither away and decline rather than, you know, giving it the funding it needs to operate. And this kind of reminds me of... A few things you said in in your nomination, Jonathan, but did you know that it would only cost $46 million for City Hall to have not reduced subway service by, like, 6 to 10 minutes or whatever they, they changed it? 46 million. Sounds like, about right, yeah. That's absolute peanuts to Queen's Park. Mm-hmm. Like, they piss 46 million, excuse my language. And Premier Doug Ford spent the whole election campaign talking about how we need to be able to make Mm -hmm. it easier to move people and goods around the province faster. So I wonder, like, yeah, can a business call up Doug Ford and say, like, my employees are quitting because they can't get anywhere on the TT fucking C? Anyways, that's a side Mm -hmm. note. The battle for mayor, I think the fact that professional election campaigners are going to campaign and that's what's happening. But the speed at which all these PC backroom boys Mm Uh, have already gotten involved in this race before it's even started, really kind of underscores to me how it's ultimately a, a battle in the name of Doug Ford. And the winner is the battle for the next mayor
2: of Toronto. Participation trophy goes to last year's winner, the battle against the people of Ontario who walk and breathe. Our asses are still thoroughly kicked.
1: And the next category is most harmful policy. My nominee for most harmful policy is a policy that was actually just initiated last week. The Ford government announced that starting in grade 11, students will be now allowed to drop out of high school effectively and become skilled trade apprentices. The provinces says this quote unquote apprenticeship pathway which was uh, requested by a bunch of those construction unions, if you remember, the the ones that supported the PCs during the election campaign, the government says it will help fill all of these job shortages that they're so worried about. The participants in this program, who are teenagers, the government referred to them as young workers and said they can earn a mature student diploma when they're done with the apprenticeship. And it just seems very harmful to me for a provincial government Uh, which is in charge of the education system, to be encouraging teenagers to drop out of school. Also notable this is happening at the same time as red states in the U.S. are rolling back child labor protections. Yeah, I mean, it's fine for governments to encourage students to learn trades, but should they really have to do that when they're 16 and, like, leave the school system? I nominate this as the most harmful policy because... You know, the Ford government's been accused routinely of undermining the public education system, but this is really the most direct example of that yet.
2: Fuck, you brought child labor to a Greenbelt fight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry, all my nominees are very depressing this year.
2: My nominee is something fun. No, no, not really. As far as I'm concerned, until I until I heard that child labor was on the table, my the answer was the Southern Ontario Greenbelt stuff. Uh, you know, that Ford is willing to trade away whatever tiny climatic advantage this region might have in its ability to, you know, weather the apocalypse in exchange for door prizes or whatever. But what I'm going to nominate here instead is his effective dissolution of municipal democracy in Toronto and, and Ottawa. You know, as we've talked about before, to call them strong mayor powers is misleading. What he really did was weaken and all but eliminate the powers of city councillors, at least as it comes to citywide policies and citywide issues, and pretty much turning a mayor into a strongman. But even more harmful than the direct implications of centralizing municipal authority in an individual rather than a legislative body, I think are the indirect ones. Like, we know that Doug Ford would not have done this if he didn't like the mayor, that Toronto had at the time, and we're pretty sure he wouldn't have extended these powers to Ottawa if Catherine McKinney had won the election there. And now that Toronto will have a new mayor, we don't know what the future of any of this will be. And to me, that's the problem, like the, the biggest problem anyway. That's the harm, that he's ruined municipal democracy not so much just by centralizing power with the mayor, but by sending a strong signal that municipal elections don't matter. Because if he likes the person who's the mayor, they get all the power. If he doesn't like the person... Chances are they'll have less power than ever, and he has himself has extraordinary powers to meddle in any municipal election to ensure his preferred outcome. You know, because you know, while the democratic rights clause in in, in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms can't be waived away with the notwithstanding clause, like that's solid, that doesn't apply to municipalities anyway. Like the democratic rights on, that Canadians are guaranteed constitutionally does not apply to municipal elections. So for the first time in my adult life, I'm kind of not terribly excited or even engaged by the prospect of a Toronto mayoral election, in large part because the premier has persuasively convinced me that he won't let the outcome make a meaningful difference. Like, say Josh Matlow runs and wins, which is plausible, it's very easy to imagine Ford passing new laws that restrict the city's ability to make its own decisions. Like maybe the city could only raise property taxes so much per year, or maybe the city would no longer be allowed to try to trim the police budget. I guess as someone who for so long was known for my passion and enthusiasm and engagement with municipal politics, I feel like he's finally, like, crushed that spirit. None of this matters anymore. And I want to have something helpful to say to bring us out of that. But because this is the most harmful policy category, I don't feel compelled to think through this hard enough to figure out what is the upside here. So I'll just say I think, yeah, the most harmful policy is effective, having effectively or begun the process of dissolving a whole order of government.
1: Well, I'm sorry your spirits are crushed, Jono. And the winner is... Everything everywhere all at once, it's a time! Oh, Child wow. labor and undermining democracy. Wow, what a wow. Very harmful policies all around. Yes.
2: I guess with Doug Ford, we are in fact in the hot dog fingers universe.
1: And the next category is a fan favorite. Best Fordism.
2: This year we have a longer list of nominees, and we asked the team at Canada Land to vote on their favorite.
1: Here are the options. I'll be up their ass with a wire brush. That's what Premier Doug Ford told Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in a phone call about the Freedom Convoy blocking Windsor's Ambassador Bridge. The transcript of the phone call was entered into evidence at the Public Order Emergency Commission inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act.
2: So sadly, we are denied an an audio clip of that. But the Prime Minister got to hear him say that. And the second nominee is...
1: Everything's going
2: tickety-boo in Toronto on the resignation of Toronto Mayor John Tory.
1: The third nominee is, Oh, I forgot, you don't have a heart. That was Premier Doug Ford cracking a joke about global news reporter and press gallery present Colin DeMello after inviting him to lay down on a cardiac operating bed during a photo op in December.
2: And the fourth nominee is...
1: <laughs> Holy Christ. What was that? I just swallowed a beat. Oh my <laughs>
2: Once again, the nominees are Wirebrush, Tickety Boo, You Don't Have a Heart, and Holy Christ, I Just Swallowed a Bee, of which the winner by a landslide
1: is... Holy Christ, I Just Swallowed a Bee! <laughs> Although this currently isn't a well-used expression or euphemism, the Canada Land team has promised to start using it as one. What would be a good time to use that as a euphemism? Stub your toe and just say, holy Christ, there's swallowed a bee. Ow! Our producer Katie had a good suggestion um,
2: that you could be used like in place of like FML. S-A-B. <laughs> you could use it as an alternative to, to spit takes.
1: Or like, oh, my rent's due. Swallowed a bee. S-A-B.
2: Or Jerry Seinfeld releases his bee movie and it bombs at the box office and you could say, holy Christ, the world just swallowed the bee. Mm-hmm, um,
1: mm-hmm. He really swallowed a bee with that one. He
2: really swallowed a bee with that
1: one. <laughs>
0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: The next category is most blatant conflict of interest.
1: Um, I mean, my nominee, it's got to be the stag and doe. What else do you say? It was the stag and doe. Maybe the wedding. We'll see. We don't know as much oh, about no. it. Yeah, you know it's mixed information about them both. The combination, the, the Kyla Ford. Kyla Ford? Kyla Wren. <laughs> Koala? No.
2: Yeah. Kuala,
1: <laughs> Koala Ford. Uh, Koala Ford's wedding celebrations uh, throughout the months of August and September, maybe October of last year. The developers attending, giving cash to the family uh, and being rewarded for it. Massive, massive, massive. <laughs> yes. Conflict of interest.
2: I feel like we don't give enough props to Cara Ford for not once ever having done something that makes the news.
1: I tried to talk to her at an event once and she just walked away from me, which was honestly smart. That's fair. My nominee is
2: Steve Pagan for his deep affection for Patrick Brown that failed to sort of account for or explain or just disclose his friendship with Patrick Brown or his family's and spouse's involvement with Patrick Brown back uh, about a year ago. Pacon wrote a blog post called The Man Who Could Have Been Premier, if not for a serious journalistic error, would Patrick Brown be leading our province? Now, well, just I don't really want to get into litigating the details of that. But so if we set aside the argument that it was like one mistake of a detail, a bit of crucial detail in CTV's reporting that and not anything in Patrick Brown's own conduct that cost him, that led to him resigning as leader. If we set set that aside, this is the kind of column that, you know, ends a Brown has demonstrated a kind of resilience not often seen in Canadian public life. Enormous credit goes to Genevieve Gualtieri, now his wife, who stuck by him when numerous other friends abandoned ship. Brown could have, almost certainly would have, been premier of Ontario if not for an egregious journalistic mistake. Regrets are all well and good, and I've expressed my share of them, but the consequences of this scrub have been unlike anything Ontario has ever seen before. I mean, among other things, he doesn't mention that he was at the wedding between Patrick Brown and Genevieve Gualtieri. He doesn't mention that his wife, who's a healthcare lobbyist, uh, Steve Paken's wife, you know, helped author and advised on the, the Patrick Brown's health policy. He doesn't mention that his wife, Francesca Grosso, also wrote or ghost wrote Patrick Brown's book, <laughs> which, as Steve Paken later conceded, he was not aware of, even though you know that information had come out in a court decision around—there was a legal thing around the insurance and libel insurance from Patrick Brown's book, but, but the, the circumstances that aren't, aren't important. But basically, it had come out in court as an accepted fact by a judge that his wife was the ghostwriter of Patrick Brown's book. And apparently, this took him by surprise, which is plausible, yet nevertheless astonishing. Payton later followed up with another blog post called What Do You Do If When Your Conflicts of Interest Are a Family Affair?
1: Like many conflict of interests are family affairs, right? Yes. And it's not like a rare aspect no. of conflict of interest. Yes.
2: But. No, exactly. Concluding, uh, you know, four decades in journalism has given me the chance to meet Ontarians from all walks of life, many of them politicians. I'm lucky to have met so many interesting people, and I strive to make sure that my journalism is not swayed by these connections. That's why I'll make sure that, when the situation demands it, You'll know what I know, but any potential conflicts real or perceived, which good, fair enough. But I mean, I think it's worth considering the point at which someone's entanglements with the subject of their beat outweigh the value of the institutional memory they bring. Right. Like, I'm glad he's been around for 40 years. I think there are a lot of upsides to that. But when you are, do end up being friends with a lot of people and having all kinds of relationships to a lot of people? Maybe that's at a certain point becomes a net negative, or at least a substantially complicating factor that makes it difficult to get the primary job done.
1: Anyway. Well, he's not called out for conflict of interest since then, too, because one of his brothers or I don't know how many brothers he has, but a brother Mm -hmm. um, owns land in Hamilton that was impacted by. I think, the municipal boundary extension that the PCs did in November. And then he was kind of called out for not disclosing that, which he said he didn't know about as well, which maybe is true. What got me about that latter one was, I can't remember the phrase he used on Twitter, but it was something like, okay, here it is. He says, I happen to be a member of a family that's very engaged in the world. (laughs) Oh, Oh. like That just makes me feel bad about myself, and I don't know why. (laughs) Wow. He really swallowed a bee with that tweet. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good (laughs) euphemism. And the winner of the Dougie for most blatant conflict of interest is the stag and doe. It was always going to be the stag and doe. And the next category is the Relaxed Doug Ford Will Be Fine Award. My nominee is the people of Ontario who walk and breathe. At least 1.9 million of them uh, cast a ballot for the Ontario PCs last June. That was 400,000 fewer voters than voted for the PCs in 2018, but still enough to earn the party an even bigger majority in the legislature. All 1.9 million of these folks thought Doug Ford would be fine. Uh, They voted for him to continue to govern them, Buying into his vision of an Ontario where a new highway, a promise of jobs, and some spin about getting housing built is all we need. What's your nominee, Jono?
2: I nominate the editorial board of the Globe and Mail, which, the day after the election, published an editorial under the headline, The Doug Ford of 2018 could never have won an election in 2022, but he changed. Why have Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario been re-elected, they asked, before observing that... Back in 2018 or 2019, the words we would have used to describe such an outcome would have been inconceivable and disastrous. Instead, they found it entirely expected and not entirely unwelcome. What changed, they asked themselves. Well, they said, Mr. Ford changed. His government changed. The man who was elected in June of 2018 was not prepared to govern and not much interested in it. Okay, true, true, fair, fair, fair. But why did they believe that was no longer the case? Well, they said, because he spent his early days in office obsessing over personal vendettas such as settling a score in the old hood by downsizing Toronto City Council. He even talked about invoking the notwithstanding clause to make sure the hit got done, which is like threatening to use nuclear weapons because you couldn't get a table at the Olive Garden. So the first two examples they offered of the old Ford, the one who was blessedly gone, the the primordial ooze past which evolution had progressed, Or that he had gone out of his way to fuck with Toronto City Council and that he pissily threatened to use the notwithstanding clause to pass legislation running Rashad over charter rights. Well, glad that's all in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, as the automated disclaimer above the piece in the Globe's website notes, this article was published more than six months ago. Some information may no longer be current.
1: And the winner of the Relax, Doug Ford Will Be Fine Award goes to the Globe and Mail editorial board. Yay. We don't know
2: who you are, but you should all save the date just in case.
1: And the next category is Doug Ford's greatest achievement. My nominee is
2: Doug Ford making housing just a little bit more affordable by selling his own house for half a million under the original asking price. So Doug Ford said he would make housing more affordable, and he personally did so, for one lucky family at least, by selling his own house last summer for 500000 less than the initial asking price. You know, this may not have been deliberate largess. I'm sure he would rather have gotten the original sum of $3.2 million rather than the pitiable $2.7 million that he ended up with. But in somehow failing to sell a six-bedroom, four-bathroom mansion—is that a mansion? It's a big house for, for fewer than $3 million— he certainly pulled off something few would have thought possible. I mean, it has a it has a 50-foot pool. The place he's moving into only has like a 35-foot pool.
1: My nominee is also housing related. It is the government's ability, their achievement in holding a straight face as they continue to paint the opposition parties at Queen's Park as NIMBYs, while Doug Ford's own cabinet ministers are actively opposing housing projects in their own ridings. Come
2: to order. Listen, if you listen really closely, Speaker, you can hear the sound of NIMBYism
1: So ever since the PCs decided on their campaign promise to build 1.5 million homes in a decade, they have been using Question Period to call NDP MPPs either NIMBYs or BANANAS, uh, which is an acronym for Build Absolutely Nothing Anywhere Near Anything. Anything everywhere all at once. Mm-hmm. Even though Ford's own cabinet ministers, like I said, are quietly acting like total NIMBYs all over the place. For example, Associate Minister Michael Tablolo went before Vaughn City Council in February in person to argue against a condo project because he said the local residents don't want a 12-story building next to their backyards. Uh, they don't like shadows. This isn't necessary. So what is more nimby than that, literally complaining to a city council about a 12-story building? Perhaps even worse, and I think maybe we talked about this on the show, uh, is that Ford and three other PC MPPs accepted a Key to the Town Awards from the mayor of Oakville last year for <laughs> effectively halting the construction of nine apartment buildings in the heart of that city, which would have meant that the Glen Abbey Golf Course had to be re developed. Mm -hmm. So the nominee for greatest achievement, it, you know, it honors the Ford government's ability to claim that it's pro-housing while also (laughs) accepting awards for not building housing.
2: Are you saying they're hypocrites, Allison?
1: You know, if that is an achievement, (laughs) and and then they're still doing it. They did it last week. They just did it last week. They called them NIMBYs all over the place. Uh, Even though what the NDP is saying is like, municipalities need to keep charging developers fees because otherwise they can't build sewers. And then they shout back, you're a NIMBY, you don't want to build absolutely anything anywhere ever. But not us. <laughs> We're just accepting awards.
2: And the winner is bananas because of the uh, rich source of potassium they provide. No, uh, Doug Ford is, is building absolutely nothing anywhere near anything, except on the Green Belt, I guess, in which case it's, you know, all everything all at once, et cetera, et cetera. So, Doug Ford is Bananas, B-A-N-A-N-A-S.
1: <laughs> and our final
2: award of the night is Most False Promise.
1: Um, my nominee, we're kind of just going in circles with these things, but I, it's tearing up the green belt. This is a huge false promise because... Unlike other controversial policies Ford is undertaking, um, like the the child labor one, he didn't promise not to... Um, Have uh, child labor? Yeah, no. Yeah, he didn't no, promise not. not to uh, do that. He <laughs> yeah. didn't promise not to privatize surgical care, but he really flatly, multiple times, promised not to develop the green belt. He honestly he fully lied. And I'd argue that he continue and his government continues to make false promises about the necessity of doing so. There's been a bunch of studies since they announced this that show there's plenty of land that could already be developed into housing without doing this. You know, one thing is they they're for the Greenbelt land that they're going to allow de- to develop, they're not even putting any rules on it that it has to be affordable housing or slightly dense housing or anything. Like, it could literally just be 10 mansions that they pave over farmlands for or whatever. So they don't need to do it. And they lied about saying they weren't going to do it. And those are their false promises. And my pick... Back in 2011, back when
2: he was a city councillor, one of his greatest ambitions was to bring a Nordstrom to Toronto. When he was talking about the plans to redevelop the portlands in Toronto, he had this grand vision. Of course, everyone remembers the Ferris wheel he mused about and the monorail and stuff. But something he did mention more than once was that there would be a giant mall that would house some of the biggest retailers in the world. It would be 1.6 million square feet of one of the most prestigious malls in Canada. We'd try to attract Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's and Macy's. That was in the spring. In April 2011, he mused, make that a green area. Bicycling beaches, then make massive retail outlets. But not just the regular retail. I'm talking the Nordstrom, the Macy's, the Gucci's. Something different. Yeah, so one of his greatest ambitions, one of the things he wanted to bring Nordstrom to Canada. And what do you know? The next year, 2012, Nordstrom came to Canada. But now Nordstrom is leaving Canada. I fear that Doug Ford has let us down.
1: Yeah, I, I liked buying my workout gear from there. I'm a little sad they're going.
2: And now it's all scattered to the winds.
1: Ironically, on the on the Gucci thing, when Doug Ford's house was listed mm-hmm. um, on, like, realty websites, they oddly, like, staged it by stuffing all these Gucci bags in the closets that were, like, tissue paper and stuff in them as if the person that would live there would just shop oh. at Gucci all the time. And the winner is... Nordstrom, somehow we're blaming this on Doug Ford. All right, (laughs) the falsest promise was that Doug Ford would let us live in a Camelot of Nordstrom, but instead first Sears, then Zellers, and now this, we are
2: stuck. No, no nice retail, and now also no farmland. (laughs) <laughs> what over we left with no retail and no then? What's left? Just just pavement? <laughs> and well, I suppose Doug Ford and consequently all of us have really swallowed a bee on this one.
1: <laughs> and that was Wag the Doug, an award show about choking on stingers. I'm Jonathan Goldsby you can
2: find me on Twitter at Goldsby and occasionally hosting Shortcuts, which is the media criticism show that
1: comes out Thursdays
2: on the main candleland feed.
1: I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queens Park Today.
2: Our producer is Katie Lohr, Annette Ajofo is our managing editor, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley.
1: Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to canadaland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.